Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. saying that I am very gratified by the feedback that I've been getting from this series that we have been teaching. So what we've been doing for the last few weeks is that we've gone back to the very basics. When I decided that I was going to teach a series of topical messages instead of going verse by verse through books of the Bible, which is what we typically do, When I asked for suggestions of topics that we could look at, I got a good number of suggestions, but none of them, as I said a few weeks ago, seemed like a good place to start. And I had this nagging little voice in the back of my head saying, go back to the basics, go back to the beginning. And I am very glad that I listened to that nagging little voice 
Because I have learned through the years that when I do not follow the prompting and the leading of the Spirit, that there's usually a price to pay. And so rather than beat my head against the brick wall of God's determination of what's going to happen here, I'm just really glad that I followed that prompting because the feedback has been very positive and so many people seem to be benefiting from it that it really makes me happy. Uh, So what did we do last week? Last week we looked at four examples that I said were axiomatic self-evident examples of the Bible's factuality, that you can trust it, that you can take the Bible at face value to be the actual word of God. And the way that I've been doing that is that we've been looking at sections of the Bible where prophetically it has announced that something is going to happen. And then we find the fulfillment in real human history, in just actual facts. Things that just simply happened, like the fact that Cyrus, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, was predicted by name by Isaiah 150 years before he was born, 180 years before he even took the throne. And then we go back and we look at Middle Eastern history, and sure enough, 180 years later after Isaiah said it, there's a king named Cyrus who conquers Babylon and leads the Medo-Persian people. Now that means either Isaiah got really lucky or the Bible actually is the very word of God because only the word of God can do things like that. And as I stressed last week, there is no other respected religious literature on the planet that does the same thing the Bible does in predicting or prophesying or announcing or declaring the future. And it is one of the great evidences that I think God has given us to say, look, I'm in control here. I'm the sovereign. I'm the omnipotent. Watch, I'll tell you what's going to happen. And of course, as we saw several times, God actually put it out there so that we could check it, so that we could test it. We also saw last week things like the book of Daniel predicting in tremendous amount of detail who the successive kingdoms were going to be and the successive kings that were going to rule over Jerusalem, the Middle East, Israel. That whole area was predicted from Nebuchadnezzar and from the Babylonian captivity, actually, while Daniel was actually in Babylon and had the vision and interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He was then told that it was going to be the Babylonians and that it was going to be the Medo-Persians and that it was going to be the Grecians and that they were going to have the notable horn and Alexander the Great and that it was going to be the Romans and then eventually a ten-toed kingdom. All of that was predicted and four-fifths of that so far has come exactly true. And all you have to do is look at Middle Eastern history to find out that that actually came true. And so I was basing my argument on, look, the Bible declares these things in advance, and then those things actually occurred. 400 years before there actually was such a thing as crucifixion, you read the Psalms declaring in advance what crucifixion felt like, what crucifixion 
would result in. And the psalmist also declares that Christ, when he went through that torturous death, would have not a bone of his body broken. These were remarkable things, considering that breaking leg bones was part of crucifixion. And yet the Bible declares in advance that crucifixion is going to happen which didn't start happening until the Medo-Persians. And then the Romans got a hold of it and decided, you know, that's just not painful enough. We need to ramp it up even worse. Rather than just tying people to crosses, how about we start nailing them to crosses? And the description that David lays out of what crucifixion would be like is accurate despite the fact that it didn't exist. And so I keep finding these evidences in the Bible that show me, that prove to me that the Bible has to be the word of God. It it cannot be a man-made product. It cannot be the result of somebody's imagination because I can imagine a lot of stuff. Micah can imagine a lot of stuff. We can all imagine a lot of stuff, but the stuff we imagine doesn't come true. But when God declares the future in advance, it happens. So we got through four of those evidences last week. And as I kept pointing out, you don't have to go to the Bible to find the fulfillment of these prophecies. You find them in actual human history. And I said that there was objective evidence and that there was subjective evidence. And this morning, we're going to look at some of the subjective evidence And then having concluded that the Bible is indeed then the word of God, we're going to look at some of what the word of God says about the word of God. Because if the Bible is in fact the very word of God, then it is its own best authority on itself. Whatever it says about itself, that is God telling us what to think about his own word. Are you with me so far? Yes. I'm just summarizing and introducing There is a fifth point that I was going to add to last week's four points. This is a little broader, and it's not Old Testament. This is New Testament. The New Testament speaks extensively about Jesus, about the fact that Jesus Christ was on the planet. Now, one of the many ways that atheists, cynics, will try to disprove Christianity is that they'll go right for the jugular, and say, well, Jesus didn't even exist. Except that that is an argument that simply cannot intellectually be honest. Because, as we talked about a little bit last week, Christianity got its foothold in Jerusalem. It got its foothold in Judea, in Canaan land, in the area where If Jesus didn't exist, and then the New Testament authors wrote about Jesus, everybody in that area would know, well, he didn't exist. None of that's true. None of that stuff they wrote about, that never happened. And it is impossible for me to believe that Christianity could get a foothold among people who actually know whether or not these things could happen. But you don't even have to go to the Bible to prove that Jesus did, in fact, exist. I'm just trying to bury this concept that Jesus didn't exist. You can go external to the Bible. You can go to actual human history, and you'll find testimony that Jesus did exist. For instance, when writing about the burning of Rome, Tacitus, the Roman historian, was writing 
early in the second century AD, so the early 100s, within 60 years of, of the Bible being written. In his annals, this is chapter 15, he mentions Jesus and the Christians in explaining why the emperor Nero burned Rome and then put the blame on Christians. Here's exactly what he wrote. But not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods, availed to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the burning of Rome. To suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea during the time of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <laughs> Accordingly, an arrest was made, first of all, of those who pled guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as hatred against mankind. Okay, now, what has Tacitus just told us? He's told us Christianity existed in Rome by the time he was writing in the early hundreds. He's also told us that the reason Christians were referred to as Christians was because of Christus, the Christ. That's just simply the Latin word, Christus, which is why when we say the solas, you might hear sola Christus. That Latin name for Christus is an admission by Tacitus that he actually existed. And then he went a step further and told us something very important, that Christianity got its start in Judea, which is the very place that it would never get started if Jesus did not exist. Because they're the people who would know whether Jesus existed or not. So can we all kind of conclude, not only from the biblical testimony, but from the testimony of history and just the testimony of logic, can we conclude that Jesus did exist and put away that argument? Whatever else you're going to say about Jesus, if you're going to argue about the crucifixion, if you're going to argue about the resurrection, all of that is predicated on the notion that he did live. There's no point in arguing about the death of Christ if you don't first admit that he lived. He was an actual person who actually lived on the planet, who actually is recorded in the Bible and also recorded in secular history. By the way, Tacitus is not the only person to mention him. Pliny the Younger and other Middle Eastern historians also mention Christ and Christianity. Okay, that was the end of last week's argument. Now we're going to talk about the subjective evidence. Do you know what subjective means? Subjective evidence versus objective evidence. Objective means it doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you're, 
invested in it, if you're concerned about it. It just doesn't matter what your particular feeling is or your particular bent or tradition might be. Some things just simply are because they are, and you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about the fact that Isaiah accurately told future in advance and then that history actually played out exactly the way Isaiah said it was going to. You can't do anything about that. All you can do is read that and go, well, that exists. Okay, subjective evidence is the evidence that really is concerned with you because the Bible also offers subjective evidence. The Bible says things about you that prove to actually be true. And when you find yourself in the things that the Bible says, that is subjective evidence for you that the Bible is true. For instance, is there anybody in this room who'd be willing to admit that, yes, you're probably not completely holy and as good as you really ought to be? Anybody willing to say that? Oh, yeah, yeah, that should pretty much be everybody. Well, you know what? The Bible says that about you. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit came to you, the first thing the Holy Spirit would do is convict you of your sinfulness so that you would recognize your need of a Savior. Okay, so the Bible says that you're utterly depraved. The Bible says that you're incapable of being good enough to impress God with your own righteousness or your own holiness. The Bible says that your best righteousnesses are filthy rags. The Bible says all that about you, and then at some point in your human existence, you're going to come to recognize if indeed God is drawing you, if the Bible is teaching you, you are going to realize you know, that's actually true of me. I'm really not that good. I might be able to dress it up. I might be able to comb my hair, brush my teeth, and go out in public and look okay. But when it's me at night, alone in my bed, what I know about me is I'm embarrassed of me. I do things and say things and hurt people all the time in ways that I shouldn't. And I certainly don't live up to the standard that God holds for me. Well, once you come to that realization, recognize that the Bible says that about you. The Bible confirms that you are you. That is subjective evidence. The Bible says things about us, says things about absolutely everybody. For instance, the Bible says you must be born again. The Bible declares that. You must be born again. What does that tell you? It tells you that your first birth isn't good enough. The very fact that you exist, the very fact that you live here, the very fact that you're on the planet, the very fact that you have a birth certificate isn't enough to get you to heaven. You need something else. You also must be born again. You, individually, must be born again. Anothen is the Greek word. It means to be born from above. So that physical birth that your mother gave you is not adequate for eternal life in God's heaven. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. Now, it doesn't matter as you're looking around. 
if it turns out that Lee was born again, or that it turns out that Jeff was born again, or if it turns out that Leon was born again. You must be born again. Once you've come to the realization, I'm not all that good. Once you've come to the realization, I actually am a sinner. Whether or not I like that assessment of myself, it's what the Bible says about me. It's what God says about me. I am a sinner. Well, then the next thing you're going to know about you is you got to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to take up habitation in you. And the Holy Spirit begins the process of changing you from within. And then over the course of your life, you start to recognize that you're not like you used to be. Anybody had that experience? Amen. I mean, I can stand here right here right now and tell you I'm not like I used to be. If you had known me in my 20s, you'd have hated me. And rightly so. I was a really difficult person to be around. And God changed me. And God brought me to the knowledge of himself and the knowledge of the distance between his holiness and my sinfulness. And then by his Holy Spirit, he infilled me, he changed me, he drew me, and I went through the born-again experience. Okay, that is what I'm calling subjective evidence. When you can look at your own life, and recognize that something has happened to you that you didn't cause. Something that happened to you, external to you, that something changed you and you didn't change you. And then you go to the Bible and you find out that God said, yeah, that's what he does. That's what the Bible says God does. Yes, he puts his Holy Spirit in you and by his Holy Spirit he's able to bring you to his word and to his righteousness, to his holiness and draw you and redeem you and even predestine you that he can also justify you and glorify you in advance once you start to recognize all that and say, wait, 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 that's happening to me. That's happening in my life. I recognize that in me. That is subjective evidence. Of the truth of the Bible. Because the Bible says that's what's going to happen. And then it happens. And thank God that it happens. Then you read in the Bible Jesus saying, No man can come to me except my Father draws him. Okay, so you're really excited about the fact that you're born again. You're really excited about the fact that you've come to realize that you're a sinner, that you're depraved, and that God is drawing you by his Holy Spirit, and so you are born again. And so you recognize in yourself that you're being redeemed, you're being justified, and, and you're walking differently. You've repented of your old way of being, and you're doing better. And so you go rushing to somebody else, and you say, guess what I found out? I found out through the Bible and through my subjective experience that God saves people. Jesus saves. That's what I found out. And sometimes you'll tell people that. You'll be very excited about it. You're very animated. You're very thrilled to tell people about that. And they will look at you and you can just see that there's just nothing going on. It's just, just brain death they just don't get it they're not listening they can't hear you and they think you're just making it up and it's old wives tales or they'll say something to you like well I'm not weak like you 
You know, if you need a crutch to lean on like that, you go ahead and lean on your crutch of Jesus, but I don't need that. Okay, why are you so excited and they're not? Because the Bible says, no man can come to me. And when you see that happen, that's subjective evidence. If it were left up to anybody who wanted to, you could go to anybody and just list the benefits of coming to Jesus. There's just all these benefits. Here they are. And so it just seems like a good deal. So you ought to come to him too. And, and they would just come. Everybody in the planet would just come flocking to Jesus. And yet, despite the benefits, starting with the little benefit of, oh, eternal life. Starting with heaven in God's glory. You would think that nobody in their right mind would reject that. They would all line up. Yes, I want to get in that really long queue right there and be ready to benefit from that. And yet human beings reject Jesus all the time while we are busy celebrating it, worshiping God over it, while we are having the subjective evidence poured out on us by the Spirit of God And it gives us confidence and it gives us the peace that passes understanding. And it gives us the lack of fear of death. The understanding that God has got tomorrow in his hands and we're going to be okay. All of those benefits we're experiencing and then we tell somebody else about it and they reject it. Well, the Bible said they would do that. That is subjective evidence. You get it? it. So everything that the Bible says about the Christian life actually does occur within Christian lives. That's proof the Bible's true. If the Bible said everybody who becomes a Christian, their hair will stand straight up and turn blue. I'm out of luck. (laughs) Exactly. In fact, I would be the one person who didn't have standing up straight blue hair. And therefore, the Bible said something about the Christian experience that I'm not experiencing. But there's nothing like that. Everything the Bible says about the Christian life, the Christian experience, the Christian confidence, all of that, we actually experience. It is an astounding, amazing thing that Christians can go through the same troubles that the world goes through. And yet we have hope. Yet we have confidence. Yet we have faith. Why is that? When the whole world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, when people are running everywhere with their hair on fire screaming, we have confidence. We know that God is in control. Okay, that's a great big difference. But the Bible says that that is the way that Christians are going to approach this lifetime. That despite the troubles of this world, despite the tribulation of this world, we are still going to confidently move forward because we know that even the troubles of this life lead to our faith, lead to our confidence, lead to our dependence on God. The Bible says that was what would happen, and that is In fact, what happens? I have new Christians write to me quite frequently. And they will say to me, 
I can't believe it. This is what's going on in my life. And look what's happening. And, and they're just so excited that they have come to understand the things of Christ. And I love to write back to them and say, yeah, that's, that's what Christianity is because that's what the Bible says it would be. And the very fact that it is and continues to be, here, I'll put it this way. What are you doing here? Why are you here? It's Sunday morning. You could be anywhere. You could be in bed. You could be at home watching Sunday morning TV eating Cheetos. And yet you got up, you got dressed on a Sunday, and you came to church. Why? Because it is built into Christian people to want to go worship God to go hear more about their salvation, to go hear about Christ and what he did, to go hear more about how all heaven and earth is working for our ultimate benefit because God is sovereignly in control of absolutely everything. We want to hear that. We want to know that. Okay, that's, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Christians would be drawn by God on a constant basis, not just drawn once so that we are saved, but that we would continually be drawn by God, and here we are, drawn by God. Well, that's what the Bible says. So subjective proof is as valid as objective proof, and I hope that by now, after looking at the objective and subjective proof, we can all collectively come to the conclusion that the Bible is different than all other books and is in fact the word of God and in fact is still speaking to us, not just theologically, not just doctrinally, but speaking to us personally as we go through our lives. Once you have concluded that this is the very word of God, then you recognize that the Bible is unlike all other religious literature ever. Not only does the Bible describe the problem, not only does the Bible say you're sinful and God's really holy, not only does it tell you what the problem is and the problem is you, not only does it describe the problem, it describes the solution. It tells you what the answer is. And the answer is Christ. Your mediator, your redeemer, your go-between, your advocate with the Father. He's the only one who can make it okay between sinful you and holy God. And that is unlike any other religious literature. All the other religious literature. Go read it. We talked about some of it last week. Whether it's the Book of Mormon, or whether it's the Koran, or whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, or whether it's the Zoroastrian writings, whether any of it, you go read it, and what it tells you is, across the board, if you want to get to God, you got to do the stuff that is required to get to God. In other words, all other religious literature tells you how to seek God. Even in the Greek and Roman mythology and their demigods, there's so much said about human beings trying to satisfy those gods, trying to seek those gods. All other religious 
thought and writing says human beings have to seek their God and please their God and satisfy their God in order to get the reward from that God. The Bible alone, the Bible uniquely says God sought men. Everything else says men sought God. The Bible talks about God choosing, God electing, God predestining, God determining, God deciding what's going to be done on the planet and who he's going to end up in eternity with. That's what the Bible says. That's unique. Rather than saying, like every other religious literature, rather than saying, You've got to be good enough. You've got to do the stuff. You have to accomplish these things in order to get to that God. Instead, the Bible uniquely says God did everything necessary to save you. You can't do it. The Bible's the only one that admits you can't do it. All the other literature says you got to do it. It's on you. You better get to work. You better be better. You better better be better. (laughs) you better get to work work hard to get to that God and whatever the rewards are kill the infidels or meditate into nirvana or whatever the rules are you better do the rules if you want that God to give you the reward the Bible uniquely says God did everything necessary to save you all you gotta do is believe that It's completely, utterly different. And that, too, is evidence that the Bible is the very word of God because no human being would come up with that. Human beings are much too egocentric. Human beings want to do stuff. Human beings want a reward because they think they're good enough to earn the reward. And the Bible says you're not only not good enough, you can't be. You can't be good enough. So God set out to save people, sent his son to die for the sins of the people so that they could be completely and utterly forgiven and that the very righteousness of Christ is going to be placed on their account. In other words, God did everything, everything, everything. All you brought to the party was your wretchedness and your sinfulness. And God did everything necessary to save you. Well, that's what the Bible says. And that again proves it to be the word of God. Now, if in fact the Bible is the word of God, I think I'm still introducing, by the way. (laughs) At some point, I'm going to get to where I'm trying to get here in my notes. If it is the very word of God, I keep insisting, then it is its own best authority on itself. What that phrase means is whatever it says about itself is then ipso facto true Because it's the Bible, the word of God, that is saying it about itself. So we're going to look this morning at what the word of God says about the word of God. So that you understand what God's opinion, what God's authoritative statements about his word are. This is the value and the importance of the very word of God. Not only is it important to human beings, but it's also important to God. God himself put himself out there 
and said a bunch of things that either have to be utterly and completely 100% true or it's not the word of God. So he really put himself on the line by having this much material written down so that we can go back and check him. The Bible is, in fact, and I think you're seeing it over the last few weeks, the Bible is verifiably true, which means that it is indeed the word of God and therefore the best verification of itself. It is the best defense of itself and it is the best explanation of itself. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think about it. What it says about it is what really matters. The word is the best source of knowledge about God. It's the revelation of God's will. And the expectations of God are placed on everyone who he has elected and called. And you find those right here in the word of God. So this becomes your source to understand your relationship with God. What God has said is so important to God that when his son actually appeared on the stage of human history, as soon as John described the coming of Jesus Christ to the planet, he referred to Jesus as the word of God. That's interesting. He didn't say Jesus was the action of God. He didn't say Jesus is the work of God or the plan of God or the intention of God or the purpose of God. None of those. What he said is he's the very word of God. Why? Because the word of God doesn't change. The word of God is dependable, trustworthy, concrete. Your opinion about it doesn't matter. It is what it is. So when Jesus was on the planet and came speaking for God, John identified him as the very logos, the very word of God. Here's the way he said it. Very beginning of the gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, right at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. He didn't say in the beginning was Jesus or in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the word of God. Okay, so how important does that make the word of God? It makes the word of God really, really important. Because as John is describing the creation of everything, he starts with the word of God predates everything. The word of God stands before anything happened. In the beginning was the word. The word, who he's going to describe as Jesus... The word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Okay, can anybody comprehend that? Yeah, that's a tough one, isn't it? And yet John lays it out plainly. The word, Jesus, was with God, and the word, Jesus, was God, and he was in the beginning with God, And as if that weren't enough, all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. 
and that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. Okay, so why would John start at the very word of God? That's what predates everything. That's the importance of the word. When Jesus was on the planet, he was the very word incarnate. He was the word of God in human flesh walking on planet earth let's go way back we said a couple of weeks ago the earliest writing of God's word actually written down on planet earth is the ten commandments written with the very finger of God apparently they were written in Hebrew which is a known spoken specific language so that they were written for man by God because God decided when speaking to those particular people to speak to them in their language the very language that he assigned for them and so he wrote it down twice and once they were written down they were non-negotiable the people of Israel didn't get a choice God did not say here I've got ten suggestions Here's 10 things that would probably be good for you. Here's 10 ways that you can be happier and healthier and have better looking children. <laughs> he didn't say anything like that. He said, here are 10 commands. You don't have any option. Here are the 10 things I've written in stone. God's word then is rigorous. Moses had to follow absolutely every direction and every assignment in detail. When you go back and read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when you read the five books of the Pentateuch, you find that God gave a tremendous amount of instruction for how to do things like build the tabernacle and what furniture had to be in it and exactly how long the poles were going to be and what kind of fabric you had to put as curtains between the separated areas of the tabernacle God was really really specific God was so specific he was down to like how big the ringlets were going to be that were going to hold up the curtains God was really specific and they were expected to follow it rigorously Moses wasn't allowed to change it he wasn't allowed to rearrange it he wasn't allowed to modify it he wasn't allowed to simplify it he wasn't allowed to make it more palatable he wasn't allowed to adjust it according to the majority opinion within the camp. <laughs> you see what I'm getting at? Majority opinion doesn't matter. God's word is what matters. Even if the whole world decides collectively to vote against what God's word says, that doesn't matter. The rigor of God's word still stands. It's still true. It's still a command. And he's still going to judge based on it. So even if everybody gets together and says, you know, that part probably doesn't count. Let's not do that. Doesn't matter. The children of Israel did not get together and say, let's vote on the ninth commandment. Because, you know, I'm okay with the other ones, but that one's a little rough. So then as the Old Testament progressed, 
after Moses had built the tabernacle, then he made a specific way with specific furniture, and then they had all the specific sacrifices at the specific times, and with very specific incense, and then there was a specific table with specific bread on it that had to be changed every Sabbath specifically. No ifs, ands, or buts. God laid out exactly how his worship was going to be done in his tabernacle. As we go forward into the Old Testament, God reveals more and more about himself, about himself, and his prophets repeatedly point to God's word And they keep emphasizing its faithfulness, its stability, and its dependability. In other words, when God speaks through the prophets, he speaks about the validity of his own word. So as you read the word of God, you'll read about the word of God. You're not just reading the word of God and deducing things from it. You read the word of God and it will tell you what to think about the word of God. For instance... Psalm 89.34, here's God speaking about his own word. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterances of my lips. That's God telling you his own dependability. That's God explaining that once he forms a covenant, once he makes a promise, or once he utters it from his lips... That's as good as gold. That's going to stand. The scriptures, according to Jesus, cannot be broken. John 10, 35 says that. The scriptures, exactly what is in here, and now we know why these particular books are in here. Now we know what the history of these books is. Now we know how it is that we got this Bible. And then Jesus himself, speaking of this Bible, says it can't be broken. In other words, it can't be dissolved. It can't be destroyed Your opinion about it doesn't matter. The word says what the word says. According to Amos 8.11, when God punishes people, he punishes them by withholding his word. That's fascinating. When he wants to punish any group of people, he keeps his word back from them. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. God himself says of his own word that not letting people have it is a punishment to them. Because only through the word of God can you comprehend what this life is about. Only through the word of God can you have that confidence and that peace that I've been talking about. Only through the word of God can you make sense of the apparent chaos that's going on on the planet. And God keeps his word back from people. You know that same God who said men cannot come to him? Sometimes God reveals himself to people, himself. Sometimes God reveals himself to people. Sometimes God just holds back the revelation of himself to punish those people. 
But the blessing of God is when his word actually does descend. That's Isaiah 55. Reading verses 10 and 11 here, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the same way that rain comes down and creates grain and bread for people, the same way that God sends rain and snow down from the heavens so that we can have water to drink and so that the whole planet can be nourished by it, the same way that he pours out those blessings on the planet, he says, so will my word be. When it goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Okay, now we know that God not only speaks his word and declares his word, he sends his word. Some people, he withholds his word. Some people, he sends his word to them. Why do you understand anything about the word of God? Why do you keep showing up here Sundays and Wednesdays and learning more about the word of God? Because he sent it to you, which is an astounding privilege. Mm -hmm. Out of all the people on the planet that he is not blessing with his word, he chose to bless you with an understanding of his word, which is why he gave you the Holy Spirit in the first place, so that you can understand and recognize the truth when you see it. And then he gives you his word, which will keep you entertained and fascinated and intellectually engaged for the whole rest of your life. Amen. It will give you satisfaction and will give you peace and will give you hope. And he gave all that to you and he sent it to you and he declares that whoever he sends it to, it's going to accomplish what he sent it there to accomplish. It never comes back to him empty. In other words, he never sends his word to somebody on purpose, and then allows them to reject it. He makes sure when he sends his word that those people aren't changed by it the way he intends to change them by it. And that's what he says about himself. That's what he says about his word. Isaiah 6, the first two verses say, Heaven is my throne, God speaking here. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, the entirety of the universe? And so all these things came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one whom I'm going to esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, the one who trembles. At my word. That's who God esteems. You want to be pleasing to God? Treat the word seriously. Yes, sir. Now, I'll give you an example. I, I believe that I've told this story at some point through the years. I was at uh, Main Street Baptist Church up in Lexington years ago. With David Morris. I was going to give David a ride back to his hotel. By the way, David Morris is going to be here I think the first Sunday of March. So I was with his son, Seth, who was just a little freckly-faced little boy. And I had a bunch of things in my hand. 
And I had my camera with me, and I had my Bible with me, and I had a few things that I had picked up while I was there. And so we had stopped, and we were waiting for his father, and I put all my stuff down. And I put my camera on top of the Bible. And when I did it, Seth's eyes got like pie pans. (laughs) And he just stared at me, and I remember thinking, I've just done something wrong And I don't know what it is. And Seth piped up, bold little, brave little Seth. We're not allowed to set anything on our Bibles. Oh, well, yes, sir. And I moved the camera immediately. And I realized, I've never forgotten that to this day, which is why I can tell you about it now. To this day, when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm reading and I close my Bible and I need to set my phone down somewhere and there's no more space on my desk, of all the places where I won't set my phone, I won't set it on my Bible because that's the word of God. And in the word of God, God himself says he's going to esteem the one who trembles at his word. That means take it seriously. That means don't take it lightly. Don't take it haphazardly. You know what drives me crazy? I'll tell you what drives me crazy. When I'm walking out of this building at the end of a Sunday morning and I find a Bible on the floor. I think, what are you you doing? Pick it up again. It's the Bible. It's the very word of God. Have a little reverence. Understand that the word of God, according to God, is very, very important, and he will esteem the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, which means you don't think you're all that. It means you recognize that God is supreme in everything, and you are utterly dependent on him. And if you are humble and contrite in spirit, and you tremble at his word, that's who he esteems. In the Bible, men like Isaiah and Ezekiel saw visions of God, and it made them tremble. Isaiah immediately confessed, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He understood immediately that he needed to tremble before God. And if this is the very word of God, then we certainly ought to treat it with appropriate reverence. The children of Israel were fearful because there were dark clouds and thunders. There was a voice that spoke at Sinai. And yet we've become so familiar with the word of God that we forget to even be reverent about it. Children of Israel knew enough to be afraid. To tremble at the word of God and to know that he's not playing around. He's serious about every word that proceeds from his mouth. And so should we then be. It's one of the reasons that I don't like so much tangential preaching because it's tantamount to a denial of the sufficiency and the power of God's word. When people start talking about everything else under the sun and sports analogies and fishing stories and they start doing that from the pulpit rather than preaching the actual word of God, it's like they're saying, well, the word of God isn't sufficient. You also need my fishing stories. I disagree. The denial of God's word started really, really early. You read about it in God's word. As soon as you open the book of Genesis, you read about it. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, 
Indeed has God said. Isn't that interesting? What's the first thing he attacked? God's word. God's word. What did God say? Didn't he say? Let's see if I can feed you some doubt about what God said. Didn't he say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The implication being, didn't God say eat whatever you want? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, well, then you better not touch it, because that's a pretty firm word right there. (laughs) No, what the serpent then said is, remember what she knows. She knows this is what God said. Don't eat of it. You're going to die. By the way, what God told Adam was, don't eat of it. You're going to die. She, in talking to the serpent, adds, not even touch it. I suspect that somewhere in the translation from God to Adam to Eve, he said, you know what? Just don't even touch it. Let's just leave it at that. Okay? First thing the devil says is a denial of God's word. She knows what God's word is. She doesn't have the Bible. She's got one directive from God. She's got the be fruitful and multiply part and don't eat from that tree. Two pretty straightforward statements. She couldn't even stay in line with them. And the devil says to her, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what did he do? Right away, he first denies the word of God and follows up with appealing to her flesh. God knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And don't you want to be like God? You'll you'll know good and evil. And by the way, the appeal was you'll know good and evil and then you'll really, really be good. But the truth was once she knew good and evil, she realized she was really, really bad. Her state of innocence was much better. She knew what the word of God was. You don't even touch it. You don't eat from it or else you're going to die. The serpent says to the woman, you won't surely die. God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, that's all appealing to her flesh. Her ego got caught up in, hey, this will make me a whole lot better. It's good food, it's good to eat, it's beautiful, it's delightful to my eyes, and it's desirable because it's going to make me wise. How do I know it's going to make me wise? Well, the talking snake said so. (laughs) Even though I know what God said, I'm going to believe the snake. So she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. She took from its fruit, she ate, she gave it also to her husband with her, he ate, and then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, because as soon as human beings realize that they are guilty, the natural instinct is to go right to work, Covering your sin. The first thing they knew was, I'm naked. 
So what do they do about it? Get to work. Make some fig leaves. Cover my nakedness. Run away and hide from God. They recognized immediately that they were sinful. Why? Because they disobeyed the word of God. And God was so serious about his word that he said, the day you eat of it, you die. And what happened the day they ate of it? They were separated from God. Sinners in the hands of a holy God. You find the same thing in the book of Job. Job's friends didn't say what was right about God. And God was immediately angry at them. Just listen to these words and sort of apply these words to so much of what you hear of tangential preaching these days in the church. Job 42, starting at verses 7 and 8, it says, And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Boy, you never want to hear that. You never want to hear God say, I am so angry at you. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Why? Why was God so angry at them? All they did was come and talk to Job while he was so very sick. After he had lost his wealth and his family and his animals and his children. And then had boils covering his body. And he's sitting on an ash heap cutting away at the boils with a broken piece of pottery. And they come and they talk to him. If you want to know what they talk about. We went through the whole book of Job verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's on our website. Go look it up. Why was God so very angry at Eliphaz and his two friends? Because you have not spoken of me what is right. Wow. God said, I'm furious at you because you didn't say what's right about me. So how should we go about being careful that we're always saying the right things about God? Well, the safest way to accomplish that is to always say what the word of God says. Just say what the word of God says and you're in safe territory. It's like, okay, well, God, you said it. I'm just repeating what you said, thinking your thoughts after you, saying your words after you. They were not saying what was right as my servant Job has. So then what does God say to them? He doesn't say, now you're completely wrong, so get busy, get to work, fix the problem. No, instead he says, you need a mediator. I'm angry at you, and I'm going to destroy you unless somebody gets between me and you and does something to satisfy my demands against you. How does that mediator come to be? God himself tells him what to do. It's amazing. It's always all God who assigns both the problem and the cure. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do to you according to your foolishness, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
So God identifies the problem, identifies the solution, and makes it pointedly clear that his word has to be represented correctly because only by his word can we represent him correctly. That's why he gave us his word, was to tell us about himself so that we can then have a right comprehension of who he is and what he's like and what it takes to please him. And how we ought to live and how we ought to behave and how we ought to worship. And what ought to be the priority in our lives. Look, humans just think much too highly of themselves. All too often we like to replace God's words with our own words. We like to make up stuff. If you get a chance, go read 1 Chronicles 17, the first 15 verses. You'll read there the story of Nathan the prophet who encouraged David to actually build a temple because David wanted to do it. So he came to Nathan the prophet and said, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan said, oh, yeah, go do it. Do everything that's in your heart. God's with you. Go do it. And then God shows up to Nathan and says, I didn't say that. I didn't tell you to say that. David's a man of war. He's not the one I chose to build my temple. In fact, God chose Solomon to build the temple. It's a perfect example of everything I'm saying. Don't get caught up in your own opinions, your own ideas, your own concepts of God or his word. Make sure that you're always saying what is right about God. And if you don't know what the right words are about God, shut up. Got it? I really like it. I don't mean to pick him out, but I really like it when I yell, shut up, and Lee nodded so vigorously that I could feel the gust of wind all the way up. (laughs) Look, beware of people who claim to have heard of God when their words fail to comport with God and with his God-breathed scripture. Ezekiel 13.3 says, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. Notice, by the way, that God admits they're still talking. They're still going to tell you stuff. But they haven't seen anything. They're just following their own spirit. Jeremiah 23.30-32 says, Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. But behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and then related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and their reckless boasting. And yet I did not send them and I did not command them, nor do I furnish this people with the slightest benefit, says the Lord. Look, God's very serious about his word. You get in the feel? You get in the idea? In the word of God, God says, I'm really serious about my word. And when people say things about me that aren't true, I get really, really angry. And woe to the people who talk about me and say things like, God declares, look, you can turn on TBN any day of the week. 
And you'll find somebody on there saying, oh, God says, oh, the Holy Spirit says, oh, and they blame God for the silliness that they say. If you can't find it in the actual word of God, it's not the word of God. And even the word of God says there were going to be people like that who were going to make up stuff after their own imagination, after their own spirit. And then they're going to feed it to God's people as if it is the word of God. And God himself says, I don't give them the slightest benefit. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16 says, And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom that was given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable will distort. They will distort the word of God as they do with the whole rest of the scripture to their destruction. The Bible keeps warning you. The word of God keeps warning you. Pay attention to the word of God. John 8, 43, Jesus said, why don't you understand my speech? In other words, I'm telling you things. Why aren't you understanding what I'm telling you? It's because you cannot hear my word. If you could hear his word, if you could hear the very word of God, then you would understand the words of Jesus. You would understand his speech. You would understand his declarations. But if you don't understand it, it's because you cannot. You don't have the ability. God didn't send the word to you. We're nearly done. Mark 8, 38. If anyone is ashamed of me, says Jesus, and if anyone is ashamed of my word, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with all his holy angels. There's Jesus himself, God incarnate, the very word of God, telling you that if you are ashamed of him, it is demonstrated by the fact that you're ashamed of his word. And if you're ashamed of his word, he's going to be ashamed of you in front of his Father, and that's not going to go good for you. That's going to be a bad day for you. Now, all I've tried to show you this morning, after my rather elongated introduction, all I've tried to show you is what the Word of God, which is the Word of God, which is provably, demonstrably the Word of God, which is axiomatically the Word of God, which is subjectively and objectively the Word of God. We've seen the proofs that it's the Word of God, and in the Word of God it says, you had better be reverent to the Word of God which means pay attention to the word of God, make sure that the things you're saying comport with the word of God and don't just start engaging in your own imagination and your own made-up stuff. You don't get a vote. You don't get an opinion. God doesn't care what you think of it. It is the very word of God. It is rigorous. You can stand on it. You can trust it. Therefore, cast your soul on the word of God. Cast your eternity on the word of God. Understand the word of God to be everything you need to carry you all the way to your appointed destiny that God has determined for you. The word of God can do that and will do that. All it takes is the word of God. Got it? Got it. Questions? You don't have any questions? All right then, Steve. Let's sing one more song, 228. My faith has found a resting place. 
not in device nor creed. Let's sing that. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.